Uh, I'm Tana Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy program. Welcome to our research seminar. And um, here at the Women in Public Policy program, we are committed to closing gender gaps in uh, economic and political participation, health and education, and as part of that toward that larger agenda, we have our terrific seminar series. Um, I'm excited uh, today to introduce Erin uh, Reed, who's a professor at um, Boston University. I got to know Erin um, when she was a star doctoral student in the sociology department here, and we got to keep her in the Boston area. And um, so I'm taking full advantage and having her over to present some of her research. Um, she is particularly interested in how men and women cope with time-greedy work. And I had, I was telling her, I was on the way over here and a staff person at the Center for Public Leadership couldn't find the time to come but said she was desperate to go to this talk. So I thought <laughs> kind of perfect. Um, so uh, I won't take any more time, but please warmly welcome you here. Thank you so much. Uh, before we talk, I'll let you introduce your topic. And Great. Well, thank you, Hannah. Oh, one, one thing, actually. Um, we are being recorded for uh, eternity. Um, as long as the yeah for the, for the ethernets yeah so be beware okay well thank you I'm so excited to be here um, so the talk that I'm presenting this is based on research I conducted at a management consulting firm which is a perfect time greedy occupation um, and I wanted to mention I'm very happy to take questions throughout the talk um, I actually get nervous if I talk for too long without a question so um, feel free to raise your hand this project is, um, I'm in the middle of trying to figure out how best to write um, a paper based on it, so I'm very curious to know, does the story make sense? What else do you want to know? Um, th those kinds of questions are um, very, very helpful for me. So, um, I look at, I'm looking at time greedy work from an identity perspective, as my title suggests, so imposed versus desired identities, embracing, passing, revealing, and then what happens to you when you lose them. Um, and so it's a consulting firm, and I'd like to just set the someone I spoke with in the course of my research, and he said, you know AGM people, we're on our Blackberries. We're thinking about our work 24-7. Maybe you tune out for a little while here and there, but AGM people work all the time, all the time. I mean, you wake up at night, you're dreaming about it. The first thing you do, you pick up your Blackberry, you're on it through the morning. You get to the office, you're working through the day, you sit at your desk, you know you're canceling plans with friends, and this rant went on and on uh -huh. about how he couldn't go out for dinner with his wife, who goes out for dinner during the week, you know, do those kinds of things. Um, and this was it's an eloquent representation of life there, and it's also clearly consistent with what I heard um, from other people. And so what I'm arguing is um, that this constitutes an identity expectation. And we often call this, so sociologists call this an ideal worker norm, which is this idea that the most desirable worker is someone who's always available for primarily committed to their work. They'll put their work ahead of all other demands. Um, they'll drop anything at, at the drop of a hat in order to work. Um, it's associated with the is totally on for work and is totally supported by someone else. Um, and because of this, it's also typically a <coughs> man, but as I'll um, talk about here, it's applied to women as well, and men and women have both similar and different um, responses to it. So it's a norm that's very salient in professional workplaces. <coughs> I don't know if people here um, feel some synergy with this, this norm, um, if it's relevant, but it's been studied among bankers, surgeons, engineers, academics, priests, um, basically all the professions shown that in these, in these settings, um, being totally devoted to, to work is what will get you performance and rewards. So I'm thinking 
talking about this as an identity, which I'm defining as the goals, the values, the beliefs, norms, interaction styles, and time horizons that are associated with the role. So to be the person in this job, you need to embody this norm. Um, and yet, we know that many people, that even people in the professions who knowingly select into these fields, um, their desired selves, the selves that they want to be, are at odds with this norm, or at least they say they are. Um, and this has been studied quite extensively among women, so there are books and books and books about the problems that women have with this norm. Um, there's almost no research on men and this norm. They're sort of left out of the conversation, um, which I think is problematic and which I've tried to address in this study. Um, <coughs> but we know, we know that men report very high work-life conflict, um, as high as women in some surveys. And we also know that men um, think of the ideal worker norm as a fallback. So it's no longer um, their intention to embody this norm, but they, they think that when they go to work, eventually they're going to have to. But it, it's kind of a fallback. It's not their preparation. <coughs> this is something that Kathy Gerson, who I understand is coming here next for the week. next talk, yeah. um, she's written a terrific book about, about young, young people and how they think about um, devoting themselves to work and family. Um, so in sum, we know this is a problem for women, probably a problem for men, but we haven't really studied that. So extant research on the ideal worker norm um, has been really focused on consequences and effects for non-work. So how do people um, manage boundaries between work and non-work? That's one thing that's been looked at. What are the effects for their health, um, for their creativity at work, how, for how they're treated and perceived? What are the effects for gender inequality? And this norm is argued to really contribute to gender inequality in the workplace. Um, but what you see, what you don't see here is how people actually grapple with this at work. So how do they actually cope with this when they're on the job thinking about who they are? So that's my research question. How do people, both men and women, cope with this in post-identity, this ideal worker norm, in light of the professional identities that they desire to announce? Okay. So th for the remainder of the talk, I'll talk about my field site, I'll give you some more details on it, talk about the data that I gathered, how I analyzed it, then I'll really dig into the findings and I'll talk about how this norm constitutes an identity in this site, how people responded to it, and then how they were perceived and the consequences for their experiences at work. Then I'll break out some contributions for both research and practice. Okay, so I went to um, a consulting firm which I'm calling AGM Consulting, that's a pseudonym, but it's one of those big fancy consulting firms. I think you probably know it. Um, they recruit from places like Harvard, very prestigious college and MBA programs. Once you get there, you're expected to work all the time. There's a fairly standardized progression through the ranks, um, associate, junior manager, senior manager, partner, and they offer advisory services all over the world. I just studied their North American operations. Um, the advantage of this field site for my research question is that basically you're expected to embody this ideal worker norm, and I'll show you a bit more about that with my data. <coughs> so I gathered 115 interviews. Um, these interviews focused on people's work history, their stories about their work, uh, their goals, their future plans, and I also asked them about their personal lives. I interviewed um, 84 consultants, and then I also have 29 other participants, so other people affiliated with the firm. Um, and here I'm thinking about administrators, um, spouses, people who've left the firm, people working for um, other sorts of consulting firms, as sort of a comparison sample. So I have a pretty good idea of what life was like from talking to this, these people. I also have their performance data for two years. So at the end of each year, the partners all get together in a, in a room and put all of the consultants' names on a board and then assign them a number from one through four. Where one is unsatisfactory and you'll be counseled out, four is a star and you're probably going to get promoted and get a huge bonus. So I have that data. I don't, I'm not using it a lot in this presentation, but I'll touch on it a little bit. 
I also have secondary data, which is basically I read very broadly about the firm and the industry. Um, I have internal HR documents laying out progression, career progression norms. Um, I have the documents that they provided people when they joined the firm. So I have a pretty good idea of the sort of world that these people were living in. Okay. So today I'm mostly focusing on data from my interviews and these secondary documents. And I analyzed them using very standard qualitative techniques. So I took field notes, I did coding, I did inductive coding, I did coding based on um, the ideas that I was gleaning from the literature. I went back and forth between the literature and the data. This, the story I'm telling today is very different from the story I thought I was telling um, when I went into the field. So it's really changed a lot um, over the years. I employed, once I'd finished coding, I employed a second coder who was a man um, to see if he would pick up on the same kind of things that I was picking up on. And I also, I did this thing where I checked in with the final participants. So I gathered you know, probably most of my data within a year and then I had a few people trickling in in the last few months. And by then I was starting to get an idea of the themes that were emerging and I was able to check in with them about, about the themes and see what they thought and see what they resisted and what they agreed with. And this helped to, again, further refine um, my arguments. Okay, so findings. So ideal worker norm, it's an imposed identity here. Some people embrace 40%, but most people experience a conflict, both men and women. And they cope by strain, so they try to stay true to the people who they want to be um, while coping with this norm at work. And they do this by doing internal identity work, which is um, how, how they define themselves in relation to this norm. <coughs> and then they also interact with the structure of their work and control information about themselves in ways that allow them um, to either pass as incumbents of the ideal worker norm or reveal themselves as female. And then I'll talk about some of the consequences. Okay, so here, expectations of primary commitment, availability, all over my data. Um, one person told me, you know, there's an implicit culture here. If you don't see somebody on at the same time at a certain hour of the night, you're wondering what the heck are they doing? What could you be doing at night in your daily work, right? <laughs> um, this is an identity expectation. So. Um, a human resources partner um, whom I interviewed said, you know, consulting is a profession where we hold beliefs regarding what it takes to be a good consultant. Look at Melissa. We hire her because she's willing to be over-responsible, highly committed. We fall into the trap of thinking that everyone is always available all the time. <coughs> so there's a strong expectation there. And it was imposed in two ways. The first was the structure of the work. So the way that work was designed and structured in this setting um, was such that to succeed, you really did have to embody this norm. <coughs> There were numerous accounts of crisis situations where all of a sudden you, know, you thought you were going home at six and suddenly you're staying there till three o'clock in the morning and you have to be back at eight o'clock for a client meeting. And that would just kind of explode at the end of the day. Um, there were often expansions in the scope of work mid-project. So they would sell a body of work to a client um, and then halfway through they would promise more work to the client without adding additional resources so people would start working double time. And there were also expectations of travel kind of at the drop of a hat. Um, the second way it was imposed was through the performance evaluation. So nominally, you know, they say they're evaluating people on the quality of their work, but it's really hard to assess quality of work in consulting where it's a team-based effort. Everyone is very good coming in, so there's really very little variability. It's hard to pick up on things. And they end up evaluating people based on whether they fit this norm. So again, here's this partner from HR who said, he, he's describing how he evaluates people. And he says, well, person B, they don't seem that passionate, responsible, committed, willing to go the extra mile. If I ask them to do something, they hop around, it feels like work to get it done. Person A asks to do something, it, get do it gets done immediately. If I have a problem, I can call them. The next day they've taken a crack at it with a smile on their face. 
between then appraisal and recruiting. So there, I mean, notice there's nothing about the quality of work there, right? It's all about behavior and, and ability to be totally honest. Okay, so as I was saying, some very happily embraced 43% of my sample. For them, this is who, who they want to be. And here's a senior manager who says, you know what, Erin, at the end of the day, I want to work hard. I like working hard. I want to be successful. I want to make a lot of money. It's important to me. I rationalize it, as you know, trying to provide for my family. So I don't mind so much because I'm at work at 9 p.m. So for this person, this identity of why he went into consulting, it's congruent, he embraces it, the life is wonderful. 43% of my sample, that is true for. But most experience a conflict, so 57%. And we talk about, um, in the literature, we talk about these. You were over big questions, right? Yeah. Mixed up a little bit. So can we go back one? Yeah. So some, so 43% are happily embracing this. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of variation in the accounts that they use? Meaning, th this guy's account is I'm the primary breadwinner, and so therefore, even if I'm not home at 9 p.m., I'm caring for my family at 9 p.m. because I'm making um, good money. And so the question is, but does somebody else come up with something that's totally different? Like, like I'm from a immigrant family. I believe in excellence, or you know, what I mean, like, uh, you know, you yeah. know, what I mean? do, do they come up with a whole variety of different things, or is there, pr or there is there fairly high consistency? or perhaps even consistency by gender in terms of the accounts that they use for why they're so happily embracing. So they do offer different kinds of accounts. I should okay. really code for that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so this guy, he's embodying the breadwinner norm. But I'm thinking there's a young woman who I also interviewed who works all the time. And she said, you know, my family says I have no work-life balance, but this is my life. All I want to do is client service. I really don't care about the rest of my life. And she said, you know, I have a laundry list. At the top of my laundry list are my clients. I wake up in the morning and I think about them. I like to go to the gym on the weekends. Um, but so for her, it was about the work. So there was okay. So there's there variation in the. Yeah. Just sorry. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking about <coughs> the labels that you gave them. Happily embraced. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking whether we really can call them that they're happily embraced as identity because it would seem to me that this individual here is also aware of it. Maybe the argument. So people regard it differently, for sure, and I tracked their turnover for three years after I interviewed them. And I can talk more about the turnover for the other groups, but for these people, three years after I interviewed them, I think only two had left. They were, they're lifers. And, and they talk at the firm about lifers and people who are just here for a few years. Um, but these people have totally bought in. Yeah. 
other questions? Okay, so people who are experiencing apparent conflict. Um, we, so we think about this norm as well back for women, um, but more than half of my men also experience conflict with this. And they said things like, so this is a young man, so you know, part of my identity is I kind of want to be able to have a life outside of work. This is not, so it's very over-conflict with the demands, right? And they cope by straying. So they, and what I mean by that is they try to be the people who they want to be, and they're straying from this expectation <coughs> of work. And this, this is just kind of a rough sketch of how they did it. So I'll walk you through this, and then I'll break it out and give you some data so we can dig into it. But basically, if they're straying, they have to manage their identities, right? Because they're expected to be this kind of person. So first they justify straying, and this is where they do internal sort of cognitive explanations for why they're doing this. And then they have to actually stray. And because the identity is imposed through the structure of work, that means they have to alter the structure of their work. So they have to change how they work. And they also have to control information about who they are and about how they're altering their work. The way that they do this is shaped by their disclosure intentions. So the extent to which they're happy for people to know who they are, or the extent to which they really want to fake it and get ahead. Um, and then their disclosure intentions vary based on who they're talking to, so who's the audience that they're interacting with, um, what's their relationship with people, and the extremity of the conflict that they're experiencing. And I'll get into that some more. And then based on how they manage this, they manage to either pass or reveal. So internal identity work. So identity work, <coughs> the definition is that it's forming, <coughs> maintaining, strengthening, or revising your identity. So it's cognitive, it's stuff you do in your head, it's how you define yourself in relation to other people. Um, it's, it's very internal. And they do two kinds here. First is social comparison. So they compare themselves actively to the people who embrace, and they find reasons why they're better than those people, or different, at least. Um, so here's a junior manager who said, you know, I have multiple friends here who basically sacrificed relationships for the job. And this kind of account came up a lot, this notion of these people are all too forced, I don't want to be forced. Um, these people didn't make the necessary sacrifices at work. It eventually led to destroying their relationship. That's Florida's reason I'm getting out. So he's identifying himself as different from those who are embracing, and there's this reason for it. They also question the necessity of the imposed identity. So they say, do you really need to do this? to get ahead. And here they sometimes made psychological, um, they sort of decided that these people were sort of psychologically um, embedded in this. And, and they said things like, some people can be efficient. Some people, they just like to work long hours. If you like to work long hours, you're probably mm -hmm. going to find a way. And so they say, you, know, you can be efficient, you can get this work done. Um, but most people really like to, it's kind of a problem with them. So this is the sort of identity work that came <coughs> that I saw in the data. Once they decided that they need to stray, they access these different tools. So they're altering the structure of their work and they're controlling information. And the way that they do this is based on their disclosure intentions. So we think about um, we think about disclosure in terms of how people manage stigmatized identities. So if you're gay, how do you manage um, your sexual identity in the workplace? If you have a chronic illness, how do you manage that? Um, so it's kind of unusual to see it in a population of extremely wealthy, mostly white, mostly male, Harvard, Stanford graduates. It's not really something you expect to, to see here, but it is something that they're doing. And so based on what their disclosure intention is, they use these different tools in different ways. So if they're intending to pass, they'll alter their stru the structure of their work informally. So consulting work, it's done, it's a project-based project job, right? 
and so they'll decide to pursue only local clients. Um, I, I spoke to a couple people in New York who said, you know, there's a huge pharmaceutical industry here that I can drive to. I'm going to specialize in pharmaceuticals, um, and I'm going to pursue local clients, and then I will never have to travel to them. Um, they talked about doing internal projects, so they start. They said things like, I really care about how um, this organization is run. It's important to me. I want to learn about firm governance. They put themselves on internal projects, and again, they don't have to travel. They don't really have a client, so they can leave at six o'clock. Um, but the way that they frame it is, it, it's all about the work, and they're pursuing it themselves. Um, they work from home a lot, and they pretended they were at clients, or they allowed people to believe that they were at clients. Mm -hmm. um, and they pursued repeat clients because if you have a repeat client, you develop a strong relationship with them, and they start to kind of treat you nicer than if they're new clients. Um, and then they control information, so they they hide the alterations. They sometimes lie overtly about their work habits, and I'll show you an example of that in a minute. Um, but this is what they do to pass. If they reveal they're still altering the structure of their work. They tend to do it formally. So they go to HR and they go to a partner and they say, look, I can't travel. You need to put me on a local client. I don't care. So they're revealing that they're not this, this person. Um, they'll ask for extended leave. They'll ask to be put on part-time work. Um, this is more actually women. I had men asking for parental leave and part-time work and getting a lot of resistance, but the organization was very happy to give this to women. Um, and then in terms of information control, they would often express low commitment. So they would tell people they were planning to leave. They would have dinners with people talking about alternate career paths for themselves, and they would talk about how they don't fit the identity. So let me show you how this works with data. So this is someone, I went to New York and I interviewed uh, these two guys on the same day. In the morning I interviewed Ben Tad. Ben Tad says, you know, everyone is linked with hours here. I would guess I work 50 to 60 hours a week. I tell other people 60, but right now it's 40. And he went on last week, it was 35. So he's lying to, to his managers. And it doesn't, doesn't really affect the client because they sell the work up front and then it's just internal accounting. The, the hours are just internal accounting, so it's not deceiving the client per se, but it is deceiving other people at work. Um, that afternoon, I, I spoke to Robert, who was working with Benpat, and Robert said, you know, he's talking about his performance ratings, which are not that good. He said, I don't know what I could do. I mean, I can work every night, every weekend, lay over, deliver, I can make new work for myself. I'm more laid back than other people on projects. Last week when I worked with Ben Tad, he was a thousand times better than me. <laughs> and I called him back and I said, did you mean that Ben Tad, you know, was working really hard? He said, oh yeah, totally. But this is not Ben Tad's account. <laughs> so this is an example of information control, right? Here's an example of altering the structure of work and information control. So this is Lloyd. I interviewed him. <laughs> Lloyd was in California. I was in Baltimore. I was talking to him on a cell phone. And he was actually in a McDonald's when I called him. And he said, you know, I skied five days last week. I took calls in the morning and in the evening. I was able to be there for my son when he needed me. I was able to ski five days in a row. No one knows where I am. And I said, well, you know, how can you do this? And he said, well, this is based on my, my client base. Um, these boundaries are only practical with the way I've set up my work, especially because we're mobile, because we're not really expected to be anywhere. There don't have to be these boundaries about how I work. But when I interviewed a partner, Partner, uh, in my interviews, I would say, can you identify someone you've worked with who's very successful and someone who's very unsuccessful? My partner said, Lloyd, he's a rising star. He works much harder than I work. Um, and Lloyd was rated a four, and he was promoted to partner. So this is an example of altering the way that he works <coughs> to be the kind of worker that he wants to be. Can we just clarify what yeah. Lloyd tells folks at work? <laughs> 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 
but he doesn't he doesn't tell them. So I asked he him. He says nothing either way. He doesn't say anything. He just delivers on a project when when he's able to in the way he chooses, but doesn't chat about his life. Exactly. Whereas okay. whereas the previous example, that guy was actively lying. He's not actively lying. It's kind of omission. Yeah. Just wondering with your earlier misclassification of people who are struggling or not struggling with the conflict. It doesn't sound like Lloyd thinks there's a conflict. Just be curious. I know you give him a hard time. Like, would he still identify the work culture as being really demanding, or is he somebody who doesn't have a conflict because he doesn't even see a problem with the demands? Thinking back.
required to work 80 to 100 hours a week. Right? Yeah. And um, they, they have a very complicated moral reasoning about what's owed back to them and with, from the employer. And the, um, they have, have a real effort bargain mentality about yeah. what its sacrifice of having to be present for so many hours requires from their life and what they extract legally and not legally formally and informally from their employer as a result. Yeah. Did you think about this issue as well? Because these people are amoral, and I mean that <coughs> in the sense of having no moral reason in their statements. Oh, that's interesting. So in terms of why they're doing this or what do they yeah, owe their I mean, employer? Yeah, it's a very similar situation. You're, it's imposed on you. You must be, I mean, this is, you, you must be present in some form, right? And if you're not present, then you fake it so that you look like you're present, right? Yeah. In their case, they have to be present. Right. And um, they have to be present because the employer has chosen not to hire people to take up the work. They just are forcing these poor folks to work yeah. horrendous numbers of hours, right? And so they have, they talk, of, these people talk a lot about it in terms of, of a morality issue um, and, and, and bargain. You know, this is what I'm extracting from my employer for doing this to me. So I have not applied that to it, but I, things that they talk about, like they talk about wanting a bigger bonus. Yeah. Um, I, th I think there is probably a situation where they kind of change their affiliation from the organization to the client uh -huh. and they start to think about their clients. Uh -huh. But I, I haven't analyzed that. I have this quote from a, partners at the end of the presentation I can show it to you later um, I actually I, no, I'll, I'll get it, get to it later but she the partner says you know this guy was just in my office and he was quitting and he said you know AGM like you asked me to give 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 I have to give my soul now mm -hmm. I'm quitting I have to write you thank you letters mm -hmm. um, and you have given me nothing but one thing that I've wrestled with a lot is why people do this at all why they're mm -hmm. staying because they could leave and people who leave go to jobs where they make just as much sure. money, sure. Uh, but they're just so invested in being consultants. It's kind of, so some of them talk about, you know, I'm doing something that um, is acceptable among the circle of people who went to Harvard Business School. So it's someone status, else, kind of. it, it's about status. And someone else said, you know, I, I'm 38, um, by the time I'm 40, I'd be like, I'd like to be doing this kind of job. I like to be at the leading edge of my peer group. So it's like the motivation is really, mm -hmm status-based, they, they are very amoral. So, no, no, I, I, and I don't mean that in a critical way, I'm just saying <laughs> the yeah. folks that I have, lots of folks that have meetings with, always use moral language when they talk about this. Yeah, I'm starting a, this is a bit of a digression, I'm starting a study at a charter school, yeah. um, looking at teachers and yeah. tutors, and they're expected to work all the time yeah. also, yeah. but they don't get paid, right? Yeah. They have crappy pay, right. and they talk about really needing to care for their students and they're doing service and yeah. it's just absent here. Yeah. Well, there is there is literature on effort bargains and I suggest that, you know, that you might think about it as an adjunct to your much bigger issues around like professional identity um, mm -hmm. and uh, it, might, it might enrich it, especially when you go to a charter school where, yeah, and especially when you're in a situation where people have the opportunity to steal back something from the employer, and I don't necessarily mean stealing the office furniture or something like that, but 
you know, going something over. Well, where they treat themselves to wonderful things, you know, when they're traveling, where they, you know, yeah. all kinds of ways that they kind of level the playing field. Yeah. I've been here a few times. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is what it looks like to pass. What does it look like to reveal? Okay, so Colin, who's your junior manager, um, also, he says, you know, my daughter was born, and one of the things I wanted to do was take three months off and do the full FMLA and be a stay-at-home dad. Um, and he sort of went on and said, you know, this is the only time I figure in my career, I can really be at home. Um, so he went to the, the firm. This was actually during the recession, so there wasn't a lot of work anyway. So he thought it would be really easy to sell it. <coughs> and they said, oh, no, you can't take three months off. And so he ended up, there was some negotiation and back and forth. He settled for six weeks. Um, the rest of the year he did the EAR weeks. He traveled. He talked extensively about how you know, he missed his daughter learning to crawl. Like he really felt like he'd given up a lot to, to work. And really, it was only six weeks off, right? Um, but when it got to evaluation time, the partner uh -huh. said, well, you have a big donut hole in your career. <laughs> like you only worked 46 weeks. We can't really evaluate you the way we evaluate other people. His performance rating fell, and he didn't get a promotion. So, so for him, he had really sort of shown his true colors, and it didn't work out. And he ended up, when I interviewed him, he was working elsewhere, and he did end up leaving um, within a year. Okay, so so people, they pass, and they reveal, um, but of course your relationship with the organization is very complex, right? You have friends, you have groups, um, there are the partners, there are all these different kind of audiences that you need to manage. Um, and, and what I found is that people pass or reveal differently in their relationships with these different kinds of people. So if they're interacting with a high, with a high status audience, they'll manage themselves differently than with a low status audience. Um, it also depends on the nature of their relationship and it, how acute their personal conflict is. So what does this look like? Um, so passing, it's typically aimed at high status audiences. So if you were a consultant, you were aiming to pass to the partners and the HR, um, the HR group. But if you were um, a senior manager or a partner, more senior, you're starting to really manage the client's expectations. Um, and so people talked about, um, I, I spoke to one woman who was working an 80% schedule, but she was well known within the firm um, to be diverging from the norm, and she talked about how this meant she probably wasn't going to get promoted, um, but she um, told the client that she was working 100% and probably didn't mind leaving um, and would sort of change her plans to accommodate the client, even though she was well known within the organization. So. So this partner is, is, she was, this woman was working full time, um, but she talked a lot in her interview about managing the client's impressions. Um, and she said, you know, the women look up, they see women <coughs> like me, they don't want to live my life, they think I work more than I do. <coughs> if I'm client facing and commercially successful, they think I must be working all the time. And they get emails from me at eight at night and Sunday five in the morning, but what they don't know is that I take a half day off to go on my son's field trip, so I do the work when I have mm -hmm. time. So, so the effect here, and she's kind of frustrated by this because she says, you know, she keeps telling people, but it's misperceived. Um, and I heard this from a, a few partners. Um, but the effect is that they're aiming at these high-status audiences, but because of the way the work is organized, because of the fact that people are mobile, um, they're not always in the office, people tend to assume that if you're successful, you must be working all the time. And so it sort of trickles down. If you're not, they'll vote you out. Um, when people had close relationships, with other colleagues, they would tend to reveal. So if they worked um, on numerous projects with the same manager, they would start to reveal things about themselves. Um, for example, if they didn't like to work on you know, Thursday nights or whatever, and, and the manager would start to arrange the work to make them happy. Um, and this, and, and so in that way, they could 
it, they could further alter the structure of their work. And so here's an example. This is a partner who said, you know, we have a shared agreement as to what work-life balance is on our team. We've designed the whole business around having intellectual freedom, making a lot of money, having work-life balance. It's pretty rare. And we don't get pushed back from above because we're squaring that circle because we are one of the most successful parts of the company. Most of the partners have no idea our hours are that light. So he had, again, um, he had described to me a very kind of rigid schedule where he's like, I work from 8 to 5.30. Um, I only travel twice a month. I do a little bit of email on Sundays. And this was radically different from many of the other people at this level with whom I've spoken. But this is how he managed it by having a shared agreement. Um, so in general, people are passing to high status audiences that they, they'll reveal if they have a very extreme conflict. So this, this was a kind of a sad story. He was a junior manager. He had been assigned, um, he and his wife had a three-year-old daughter, and he had been assigned to go to the Middle East for six months, and he had gone for six months, and the job was six weeks on in the Middle East, back for one week, six weeks on, back for one week, and it was like hugely problematic for his family. Um, and so the, the firm was going to put him back on the project for another six months, and he said, no, I can't do this. Um, and he said, if that means I'm going to have to look for something else, I'm going to look for something else. Um, and he talked extensively about how you know, this wasn't worth it, his wife had a job too, like he couldn't, he couldn't do this anymore. Um, and, and they pushed back and he said, you know, it's about being away from your family that long, right? And so again, like the other guy, he had put in for a promotion and he didn't get it. And the firm said, you know, if you go to the Middle East, you're probably gonna get your promotion. Um, but he didn't get it in the end, he didn't go back. So the recap, <coughs> they were justifying strain by altering the structure of the work. And then the way that they do this allows them to either pass or reveal. And so I've given you a couple of examples, but um, I'll show you a bit more from the whole data set. Okay. Can you share, are there any examples of pe people who choose to reveal but have a positive outcome from that? Because I think all the examples were pretty negative outcomes from supervisors and peers. Were there any strategies that people used to sort of partially reveal, to sort of negotiate the kind of balance they wanted? Or is it like just lie? Well, so when they were revealing to close colleagues, yeah. so people who they trust and who they have a close relationship with, then they can they can reveal to them and sort of alter the way that they work, and it didn't fall back on them because that person wasn't necessarily a partner or sitting in the room or um, any kind of relationship. So that that was one strategy I did. There were a few very senior people there, um, a few very senior people who were known for not working all the time, and they didn't have an obvious blowback. So, so you're saying if you're in a certain company that has a different view. Right, the culture yeah. of the company, which is usually shaped by a small number of individuals that hold positions of power. Mm -hmm. When they leave, and many people experience that, the 
goal to have a different perspective group that opens up. And I'm, I'm thinking of work, I'm thinking of flexibility of work hours, I'm thinking of um, understanding family needs and things like that. Really, really very, and, and it has so much to do with just a few people in a big organization coming in. Yes, and I, so I reported, let me present the, the past thing and revealing the consequences, and then I'll tell you, I, how I reported this back to the organization and what their response was, because I think that gets at what we're talking about. <coughs> okay, so passing. So I talked at the beginning about these people who are great, so I haven't talked about them very much. But when I compared stories about them and their performance data to those who were mostly passing in their interactions with senior people, I found that they're both referred to by their colleagues as stars and superheroes. They have the high five factor, that was another um, thing they talked about. When I looked at their career paths, so I had asked them how many months in each position here. So when I looked at their career paths, they were direct, they were sometimes accelerated. One was described by a colleague as by far the fastest person I've ever met as my partner. Mm. They had very high evaluations. So those who embraced, um, on average, in 2009, they were rated at 2.88 out of four, but those who passed were 3.08 out of four. So it's not a significant difference and it's small numbers, but especially if you looked at those who revealed. These people, as I sort of alluded to, they missed promotions. So I had seven people talk about wanting to be promoted and not being promoted. Um, they had pretty slow advancement because of this. They were persistently pl placed on difficult projects with demanding clients, which suggests that they were not really valued by the firm. They just kept getting shunted onto these other projects. Um, and they had quite low evaluations, so 2.45 out of four, which is significantly lower than the other people. So when I was, wrapping up this project, I went back to the organization. They were interested in um, knowing what I, what I found. And, and so I told them the story about passing and revealing, and they thought it was really exciting. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then they said, well, you know, the real problem is that like, the women have these work-life conflicts. And I said, yeah, but you know, the men are also reporting that they have problems too, right? It's not just the women, they're reporting in, in similar numbers. And they said, well, you know, if we just paid the men more, would that solve the problem? I said, you know, maybe, but they, they were really not willing to accept the, the results, basically. So they talked about wanting to pay the men more, and then they talked about how these were not really the men that we want. You know, maybe it's good that they're leaving. And, and it is a pyramid, people think of the pyramid scheme, right? So you're just shedding people. And if you shed all the people um, who don't fit in, then at the top you're re reproducing, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's how the culture gets reproduced. Um, and so they were, they were excited, they wanted to <laughs> but they, they were really unaccepting of this idea that it's a problem for everyone. And that was, I think, because they themselves, these senior people, had really given it all up to be there. And so it was hard, hard for them to see that maybe other people were valuable and had a different perspective. Okay, so this is an imposed identity. 60% of people stray. And really, the, the point that I think is the most important is that some of the people who really overtly um, passing. They were really lying about how they worked. And so they were able to change the way that they worked and improve the performance evaluation system. But um, someone asked me earlier about turnover. So those who embraced, I had very little turnover in that group. I had higher turnover among those who revealed, but I also had high turnover among those who passed. So even though they were getting away with it, um, they were less bought into the culture and it, it would have been more of a temporary fix if they could leave. So for contributions, um, I think 
big one for me is the ideal worker norm, which we typically talk about the consequences of and really like how people cope with it. And a big takeaway for me is that um, men and women are reporting problems to ideal worker norms. So it's not just a women's problem, it's everyone's problem. That said, we do know um, that places where there's the ideal worker norm, um, that we do have a lot of gender inequality. And so what I'm suggesting is that maybe it would be fruitful to look at the coping mechanisms that people employ, um, and perhaps that's the source of the gender inequality. So this data, I have, again, I have small numbers, but for a future research project, um, I think it's important to note that men, so 64 men, had 20 passing and 17 revealing. So people who were experiencing conflict with this identity, the men were sort of evenly divided, right? The women, I had eight embrace, I had 10 who strayed, and they mostly revealed. There were only two who really seemed to pass. Um, so maybe the difference is that they are employing different coping mechanisms that um, allow them to get away with it and get ahead, or that um, don't, basically. Um, but the, the problem is a problem that everyone confronts. Um, so that, I think, would be an interesting direction for future research. Um, it also contributes to our ideas about disclosure at work. So normally we think about passing and revealing and being yourself and faking it as something we do with sort of a social identity, like sexual identity or chronic illness. Um, but this is also something that very high status people are doing in relation to their professional identity. So thinking about faking it, I think could also be helpful. But looking at this in a qualitative sense, so most research on passing and revealing and disclosure is survey-based, but by looking at what people actually do, I'm able to show that um, the choice to pass or reveal is associated with justification, so people are actually choosing and justifying these choices, and that they are not just controlling information, so usually we think about this as what do people know about you, but they're also altering the structure of their work, which I think is really important to think about. Um, and then finally, this is predicted by who they're interacting with. It's not just a simple pass reveal in the closet out of the closet decision, but it's sort of complicated by who you're talking with, and those are the conflicts that they're experiencing. So for future research, I've talked a little bit about um, splitting this up by sex and looking at coping mechanisms. I think it would also be in this kind of setting in the profession helpful to look at race. Um, I had very few minorities in my sample. I think I had 13, which was consistent with um, that sort of setting, but they all talked about fitting in in a way that was very different from people who were white. And I think that they, like women, um, might, might look for different ways to cope with the narrative they can't fit. So that, so looking at this by sex, but also by race, I think would be very helpful. Um, and then looking at patterns over time. So I'm providing just a snapshot of what people were doing when I was doing my interviews, but how does this progress over the course of your career? So do you enter this firm um, embracing, happy to be a consultant, flying off, glamorous lifestyle, and then something happens in your personal life and you can't do it anymore and you sort of sort into one of these other categories. Um, how does revealing and being penalized shape your affinity to the organization? So for some people, running into penalties when they revealed almost seemed to make them dig in further, like they were even more devoted to trying to make it here. Um, but for other people, it seemed to be an exit strategy. Okay. <coughs> and then for practice, um, this a bit, but this is not just a women's issue. Work-life balance is not just a women's issue, and it's more productive to look at it as an issue that everyone faces and maybe look at how they cope with it. And the second big <coughs> takeaway was that in this setting, people were able to change the structure of their work without actually affecting their performance. So that means that for consultants,
consulting, it's not necessary that everyone work all the time. Um, you can actually change the way that people work mm -hmm. and, and still think that they're doing a good job. <coughs> right. So um, the presence of this disclosure behavior, I think it's important here because it underscores how important this norm is in defining success. Um, it must be important if people are trying to fake it to get ahead. But then again, it doesn't predict success, right? Because if, you, if you're straying, you really should have um, lower performance and they don't seem to. Is that it? Any questions? Yeah. Can we go back to that? Yeah. To your second point, mm -hmm. uh, you can change the work structure without impacting performance. Mm -hmm. If I remember from a number of your quotes, we had a lot of people who said, well, they think I'm working hard, but I'm actually not working that hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's strong contrast to when you open the discussion, you know, 60, 80, 100 hours a week, and people are going, oh, yeah. Do you have any statistics on what portion of your sample actually said, I figured out how to make this work, whether they're doing it because they embrace or they don't embrace? How many of them actually feel that burden of 80, 90, 100 hours a week versus the number that they figured out?
And so I'm listening to uh, the, the weather and the traffic on the way in to WVB, which I do not want you to think I listen to for their political <laughs> And um, they had a poll this morning, and the poll was how many people um, arrived late to work at least once in the last month. And their poll results are coming back, and of course, you don't know the number, unfortunately, probably just an anecdotal, but 90% um, of people said they did not arrive late to work at all this month. Mm -hmm. Now, who can care? I mean, like, why do we care? I mean, there are some jobs where you're covering a shift, where you have to be there to cover the shift, and you have to get someone to cover for you. But for many professional people, if you're putting in the time and you're creating the value, why does it matter? One, could, could you go back to your, your distribution of um, by gender across category? Yeah. And the thing I was thinking about is in some ways, like, it's such a self, the, 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 um, the women ate under revealing, mm -hmm. it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, they're just like, you know, the firm was like, oh, those women, you know, like, and they're going to need, and, and we all tell, oh, we need accommodations, we're going to need a special room for them, like, to lactate or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to need, you know, time yeah. and all this stuff. And so it's sort of like out there that they're going to need, the, you know, I mean, that you're not, you know. But the 17 men, it's kind of like, it's, they're more like radical or failing. I mean, that, that's more, it just strikes me that the 17 men in that seem to me almost more out there than the women in terms of, so they, they're bucking, a, they're, that must be more socially difficult for them, let me put it that way. Either because they're really not fitting in having a hard, hard time, or because they're really choosing against expectations even more strongly than the women. It's like some of the research, I know you know, too, about, you know, women coming, women expecting for the first time in the workplace, and everyone's hugging them, and, you know, yeah. so it's, you know and, and it could be this, there's argued, maybe there's an insidiousness to the benign, you know, sort of embracing you while you fulfill, while you, while you fade away, or something, right. I don't know. But, um, yeah. 
You know, I don't know. It's just sort of interest. I don't. There, there just sort of struck me is that that's kind of an interesting cell. Uh, my guess is it's not the same thing for people, particularly in that cell. No. Yeah. So the women. So if you're a woman at this firm, you had six months maternity leave. I think fully paid. But the men, it was hugely variable. So there was the one guy who asked for FMLA, and was denied. Um, I had other people who talked about how you could get two weeks fully paid. Um, someone else said, well, I only got a week, and I was on my cell phone the whole week. Um, so for men, it was much more, um, much more difficult. They would ask for these things and not get them. And the guys in the cell. So the reason why they're radical is is their personal lives. So I know you've written about job negotiation as this sort of two-stage game that it happens at home yeah. and then it comes into the workplace. But these guys were married, um, two or three of them, so seven were married to women who made as much or more than they did. They were married to investment bankers or engineers oh, that's so or other consultants. Um, the guy who talked about not about Saudi Arabia and how or the Middle East and how he didn't want to have back to Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. Um, his <coughs> wife was a lawyer, and she was only working three days a week at that point because they had little kids, but um, but he, he said in our conversation that, um, you know, it's not as if if I lost this job, the mortgage wouldn't be paid. Um, I have I should have more leverage at work because of her, and they talked about having leverage. So their personal lives were different. Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I yeah, I, I believe they were probably experiencing more pressure from home. And then their experiences Thing, like you're only working 80%, you're spanking, taking care of your kids, um, you're so great. Um, but for the guys, it was like, you're not getting promoted, leave, we don't like you. So, yes. so yes, oh, I'm sorry, did you follow up? Well, I wanted just to go then your passing cell. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, like, in relation to Shvela's work, and I don't, yeah. know, I don't know what the fi final form that ultimately took, but one takeaway that I have from, so sh sh we have a, a colleague, Shvela Trefold, who's at Simmons, who was looking at how people kind of manage the boundaries of work, but she looked a lot at like through friendships and social networks, yeah. right? And so I was just wondering whether, and this could also apply to race, but whether or not your capacity to pass might be different if you're from a power majority versus mm -hmm. minority, whether mm -hmm. you can get more people to support you socially mm -hmm. in that process. Um, or if it's also, yeah, if, uh, and perhaps also if you're not fulfilling a negative stereotype of a lazy, maybe lazy minority, or you know, conflicted m mother, or something like that. Yeah. So I think men. I mean, there's probably research on this, but men and women are sort of policed differently at work. Mm. I think the men were really not policed, so they were. A lot of the lying and the passing cell was really about omission, like they were, you know, off skiing and just not telling everyone, telling people. And I had a, an administrative assistant who told me, "Oh yeah, so and so, like he's always gone by five, but you know, I think he's probably going to clients." And he wasn't. He was, he was doing daycare pickup and getting online a bit later. Um, whereas I think I, I had people who'd say, who said that um, you know, when they worked with women, like they knew that they were um, spending time with their children, and, and there was this <coughs> their, their time was just policed and treated and observed in a different way. And mm -hmm. so for a woman to pass, she might have to lie, whereas the yeah. guys could do it. <coughs> and I think. <laughs> Something else I've been thinking about is um, you made the point that the women are given all these accommodations that become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when they go over at HBS, when the consulting firms come and interview, um, they tell them, we, you know, we have all these accommodations for you. And then they have children and it's sort of like pushed on them. And it's really, the organization's really constructing the situation. 
And then the women, I think, get into this mindset where they're asking permission, and the guys, these accommodations are just not really available for them, so they never ask for them, and they just kind of do what they need to do. So I love the idea that there are these gender expectations at work, yeah. um, and that they um, fit such incredible stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, I, I would imagine that the culture-producing, norm-producing roots in this organization are people who not only came up through this morning, but are living lives that um, don't expose them to the inconsistencies of these stereotypes in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's similar, actually, it rings similar to the um, experiences that women um, had around going into surgeries, surgical residencies, which yeah. is that the, the um, people who were supervising these residencies had this lore that you have to work 60 hours on and you know 12, 12 hours off in yeah. order to have the robust training experience. And of course, it, it wrecks havoc with everyone physically and you know, it does terrible things to family life. But especially for women who were starting families at that point and not because these residencies were so long, it was extremely difficult to manage. And when they took a look internationally, they noticed that not all countries have surgical residencies that were like this, that this actually is kind of folklore that got created by their profession and the people in the training in the profession that was essentially, you're good enough to be in this profession if you can survive this boot camp, right? And it's (laughs) not in any way necessarily connected to what you really need to do to be a good surgeon, but it's what you have to do to prove to me that you can be a good surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. And so these notes are set by people who didn't think it was strange because nothing was inconsistent about these norms in their lives, and all of a sudden it's, it's strange at this point in time. So the interesting thing is, how do you um, mirror back to an organization like this about the um, cultural aspect of their of their norms and how those norms are not necessarily connected to um, real performance? And this is an organization that goes out into the world and uses fairly sophisticated analytics and metrics to help other organizations improve their performance, right? Mm-hmm. And is essentially managing on a folktale that people are massaging in various ways, right? Mm-hmm. In order to make it work for them, mm-hmm. um, and is um, paying, and they're paying out for it as well, right? Yeah. And it's not related to performance, right? So you know, one would say, why would you actually hire this consulting firm since they can't do what they consult to other people to do, right? <laughs> But nevertheless, no, nevertheless. They're, they're, they're not that different from the other. No, no, no. I, I like know. I know they're not. But they're going out and telling people to manage themselves in a way that's much more objective, much more about measurables, much more about concreteness, very sophisticated analytics. I mean, I, I know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with these firms when I was in the federal service. And they're not doing it in-house, right? Mm-hmm. So who mirrors that back to them? Because essentially they're living on their own folktale. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I tried to report back to them and yeah. um, they didn't want to hear it. Right? They didn't want to hear blah, blah, blah. it. 
I did hear from a couple of people who were working in pharmaceutical and life sciences consulting that they were starting to run into a problem where they would go into the client and pharma and life sciences yeah. is a huge, I wouldn't even say female dominated, but there's a significant female presence. And, yeah. and they would go in and meet with these clients where there were a lot of women and it would just be a bunch of dudes. They would be a bunch of dudes. <laughs> but yeah, and, and, and so that, as they were interacting with their clients, they were starting to realize that you know, maybe there was a discrepancy. But they didn't really want to hear it from me. They, they wanted to hear it so they could fix the women. So, um, so you know, there are various professions that have these folktales, firefighters, surgeons, mm -hmm. you know, that, that create this norm that, you know, you have to be in 100% <coughs> and blah, blah, blah. It's interesting what those professions <coughs> have in common, right? I mean, what is consult, well, how is consulting on the firefighter? Or how is consulting like surgical residencies that produce this? Because it's not necessary, right? Right. So why is, I mean, as a sociologist, why do you think these, this norm gets produced here? And, and in, yeah, here, not in other forms of, of work? Well, I think it's a very male-dominated profession and it's a masculine norm and an idea of how men should be. And the, the expectation is that most people working in these organizations are going to be men, right? Right. And so they just kind of overlay that and that's why they problematize women. Um, but this, this idea that men should be working all the time is still, even though it's, I would say, discrepant with what is happening culturally, it's still a really strong expectation. And those professions that you noted are all very male-dominated. Right. And I think in female-dominated professions, you see other sorts of norms emerging, right? So right. thinking of nursing, it's a caregiving profession. It's not a profession where you work all the time, but but nurses are demanded to, to give a lot of themselves yeah. in a sort of caring, feminine way. Right, right, right. Even, yeah. yeah, but it, it's a bit different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, consulting doesn't strike me as a macho kind of piece of work, right? I mean, firefighting and surgery, surgery, especially in the days when it was physical work, right? Yeah. You can imagine how the male-dominated norms creep in, right? Consulting. Yes, so in my data, they, they did talk about we're superheroes, Superman. Oh Superman was like a term. Oh um, one guy quoted, I think there's an REM song, <coughs> We're All Superman. And he quoted it to me in his interview and said, That's who we are. Oh, so this really is. It, they really do believe this. Right? Yeah, so it, I think it looks sort of soft and fluffy, but it is very macho. Yeah, so there it is. generational. I, I think people in that generation 
I mean, I, I, they were happy. They, it seemed to be who they wanted to be. Um, but the revealers, I, I had the, there was this one guy, and I think I quoted him elsewhere, but he talked about how, you know, they had this baby, his wife was working, there was a company party, so he just took the baby to the company party on his own. And, and he said, you know, people looked at me like I had three heads, and there I was wheeling the baby around, and I just thought, you know, <coughs> he said, you know, I thought, people have been doing this for 25,000 years. It's not rocket science. Stop <laughs> pretending you don't know. For him, it was about really showing, you know, who he was and he was involved, and um, he felt that other people were sort of faking. That, you know, how could you look after your baby with your wife? Mm -hmm. I've got a question concerning the embracers. Mm -hmm. um, did they um, account for competition reasons um, or internalize the company rationale, or did they justify rationalize? personal, career, status, reasons, as you mentioned. Yeah, so 
they definitely internalized the company rationale. So their, the themes in their data were, um, there, there was this idea that I need to provide for my family, but there was also this idea that this is what you really need to do to really serve your clients. Um, they, they really believed in the way that work was structured. They believed that this is what it took to get ahead. Um, so they were, they were just very consistent with their organizational narrative. Thank you so, so much. That was real. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the amazing questions. Um, they're so thoughtful, and I'm, I'm sure they'll be really helpful as I try to figure out where to go with this. I'm grateful. Well, we are too. And I hope you'll join us next Thursday. Kathleen Gerson, Gerson <laughs> excuse me, um, professor of sociology from New York University, is going to talk about different ways of not having it all, work, care, and gender change in the new economy. So as you, <laughs> as you presage, it'll build nicely on this conversation. So thank you very much again. That was great.